Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. All right. Uh, welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, uh, and my co-host is Rich. Say hello, Rich. Hey, everybody. Looking forward to this episode. Absolutely. Fired up. Yes. So today we have invited Brittany Hartley, who I met through Instagram. That's kind of how I'm finding a lot of my guests. And I, sh I was like completely blown away by the way she thinks and talks about her own spiritual journey. If that's the right word, please clarify later. But it, it were, she's so raw and honest, but there's deep wisdom here. And I want, I just instantly recognized it. And so I just wanted to invite her on. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. Nice to meet you. Yes. So um, you have a very unique story that you showcase on your reels. Your sort of vein is what? Help our audience understand your, like, your focus because it's really unique. Yeah, it is different. So I am an atheist spiritual director. And so that like already has some like contradictory words and, and people are confused by. But essentially, my brief story is that I was raised Mormon and went through a deconstruction process. And for some people, they deconstruct a little bit like they'll deconstruct Mormonism, and then they'll just become a Christian and they'll be fine them. For me, when that deconstruction kind of bulldozer started going, it took everything. So like Mormonism, Christianity, God, religion, sense of self, free will, essentially until there was nothing left where you're really at nihilism. And then I spent some time in that space, really understanding that space and dug my way out. And now I really help people kind of find their authentic, I call it spiritual. Some people don't like that word and we can use other words, but at least intentional life on the other side of nihilism. And I would say about 25% of my work is helping Mormons deconstruct because I still really understand that faith. Um, and then about 75% of my work now is really helping people in nihilism, often as part of the deconstruction process, but sometimes people who were born secular, who just have this sense of existential fears and are really struggling with existential depression. And there's just not enough tools for really dealing with that. So I have become more or less a nihilism coach and really help people with the, the truly hard spaces that happen when you deconstruct a religious faith. And so I'm really about gathering tools that often religions have and have claimed a monopoly on and digging those tools out of religion so that people can have better tools for a better life. But I'm never going to ask you to believe in something unbelievable. I'm never going to ask you to, uh, I'm never going to put, you know, my beliefs in a God or a system onto you. I'm never going to ask you to, ch if you do believe in God, I'm not going to ask you to change that. It's really just how can I get the most tools for you with the least amount of belief hoops possible for you to jump through to get those tools? And so that's kind of what I do now. I love okay. the action-oriented stuff that you've got there. Um, and the first thing I wanted to ask you is, I'm sorry, Jonathan, but- No, go ahead. Go ahead. This idea of nihilism, um, N.T. Wright almost famously said, if you go postmodernism to its final result of postmodernity, you're going to end up with nihilism, Right. So what do you think are the biggest root causes of where, you know, you, you spend a lot of time talking about Gen Z and helping Gen Z spirituality. Why uh, is this nihilistic 
framework coming front and center for all these um, these folks out here in this post-COVID era? Yeah, so for postmodernism, you're definitely going to to hit nihilism. And so for me, uh, you know, the the philosophical definition of nihilism is just the belief that there's no inherent meaning in the universe. And for some people, that's incredibly freeing. And they spend like half a second there and they just like go off to being an optimistic nihilist and it works for them. And that was not me. Like that was not good news for me. Like that was really, and and maybe it's just because, you know, I was raised to think that the world was different than what it is. And it took my brain time to adjust to that. But for me, it felt like a black hole where like you can't build anything. How do I make decisions in a world where there's no kind of ultimate morality? How do we bring children in this world knowing that they will suffer? Like just every little decision seems impossible and it's paralyzing. And it just feels like you're in this black hole. And and the biggest thing that that really helped me understand this space was the work of um, Irvin Yalom. He was a psychoanalyst, a Buddhist psychoanalyst. And what he really got down to was that humans have really deep existential fears and that what religions do is they give us a lot of security blankets and a lot of binkies to face those fears so that subconsciously we don't have to deal with it. And so once you're in nihilism and you don't have those fuzzy beliefs about God or I'm going to see grandma again in heaven or all those kind of comforting thought ending cliches that you get from religion, you're going to face the monsters of nihilism, which are the four existential fears. So your first one is fear of death. And we're learning more and more how we're subconsciously driven by our fear of death, uh, fear of isolation, fear of meaninglessness and fear of freedom. That last one, fear of freedom, is that we are actually at some level afraid that we have to construct our own life. And it's kind of an illusion that, you know, people will think that if we just got rid of all the cult leaders today and all the religious leaders and political leaders, we would be free. But the reality is that we would recreate them tomorrow because we're so afraid of having to craft our own life. Um, and walk our own path that when some confident person says, I have the 12 step program for you, we buy it, we fall into it, we subscribe to it because we want help. And so really spending time understanding the existential fears and facing them and growing to meet those monsters enables you to um, live a different life on the other side of nihilism, which I think is really the most freedom that you can get as a human is actually facing these subconscious monsters and building a life that is so meaningful that you can have it even knowing about those monsters. Like you're building a life that can face nihilism and stand up, stand up to it. And that's, that's what I find really beautiful about people who are brave enough to undergo really deep deconstruction all the way to the floor kind of deconstruction is that allows you to rebuild a life that can withstand um, withstand the monsters of nihilism. And I love this quote from, from Nietzsche that if you look into the abyss, like he, he talks about in, in philosophy, they'll talk about the abyss or the void. And he talks about throwing a rose into the abyss to thank the monsters for not swallowing you whole. And I love that quote because when you really face these monsters, at the end, you throw a rose at them because the life that you created in the face of it is a greater, more intentional life than you could have ever made being driven by these subconscious 
fears, but not knowing it before you, you know, face them head on? Well, I think our mind has this amazing capacity to find the thing that scares the shit out of us. And if we don't face that, you are always running. And that is exhausting. And what I've learned is if you turn, this is what my mentor captured with me 20 years ago, is if we turn around and realize it's likely our courage saying, why are you running from me? We're meant for courage. And I think that's what you've done is you've stood and turned around and said, no, let's see what this is and fight it and realize, oh, it's for me to learn that I can overcome. What did you need to deconstruct from? Like, where did that journey begin? Hmm. Yeah, so I, I did it really in phases. Um, it started, you know, as a teenager. By the time I was a young, young adult, I was what you would call a nuanced Mormon, which is, um, you know, pretty similar to what a nuanced Christian would be. And then I was just kind of like a Christian and then kind of like a mystic, but I still had God and I kept going. And as I kept learning, I just kept deconstructing. Uh, I have a I have a master's degree in theology. And so I'm in theology school as I'm doing all this deconstructing. And theology school is the best place to deconstruct because you see how religions are formed. You see how the sausage gets made. And uh, it, it's pretty devastating to faith. And so I, I would say that happened in stages, but the hardest piece for me to lose was my belief in God because everything was like, okay, Mormonism isn't true, but I can still cling to God in some way, right? And, and it, I would describe it as clinging because you subconsciously know there's something scary about losing God. There's something scary about losing, um, for me, like justice was really hard. Like the fact that some children really are abused their whole life and then die and there's no there's no justice for them. I mean, we can we can hear their story and and they still matter to the world and the story of the world. But that is, you know, that th those things are really hard. Those 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 thoughts are really hard to deal with. And so when I lost my faith in God, that that for me was was definitely the hardest part. Um, the Odyssey. So then I, laugh, the Odyssey? I laugh when. Yeah. yeah. So I laugh when people say like, oh, you're just an atheist because you wanted to sin or because it was easy. And it was like, no, 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 no. I didn't want any of this. I was trying to find God for years, for 20 years. I'm, I'm studying philosophy and religion to try to find what is and try to find God. And, and I lose everything. I unlearn everything until I have nothing. Like I didn't choose that. I didn't want to sign up for that, but that's just how the cookie crumbled. And then I, I had to deal with these monsters of nihilism, but then learning that there are tools to face these monsters um, really helped me to build a beautiful life on the other side. And I love kind of helping people through that process, wherever they are in their, in their kind of journey. Um, I was going to ask you tool. Let, ahead, let, me, yeah. Rich, let me ask a question. What's one tool that you would teach someone in the beginning? Yeah, uh, a, a tool that I, I use often with people, especially if they're kind of in chaos or in nihilism, is, is the scientific power of rituals, is that mm -hmm. we have studies that show that rituals scientifically help process emotions out of our body 
or give us a sense of order or give us a sense of psychological safety and structure. And so what happens is um, we're caught in this space where you either, you, in the West, we kind of have three choices. You either go to organized religion and you're given the rituals of organized religion and these are the hoops that you have to jump through to go to heaven, right? Um, or you have like kind of the woo world or new age spirituality. And that has its own set of problems because um, unchecked intuition can sometimes just be spiritual bypassing. And then you have nothing, which is like pure rationalism, skepticism, atheism, which says like, oh, all spirituality is, you know, worthless. And those are not great options. They all have a lot of weaknesses. So for me, the magic is really in the world of secular spirituality because I can say, hey, we actually have science to show that rituals actually help us for whatever reason, doesn't have to be a metaphysical reason, um, helps us to process things out of our body. So let's create a ritual for you, a morning ritual, an evening ritual, a uh, let's write something in a journal and throw it in a fire and use the ashes and plant a flat. Like there are so many things you can do with just fire and water and whatever, it actually doesn't matter scientifically if it's a made up ritual, it still works. And so uh, I would say creating rituals into your life and creating this kind of liturgical calendar with your own values and your own, um, you know, beliefs and things that you love. And, you know, my family, we have, we celebrate Star Wars Day, like that's part of our family liturgical calendar. And when you create that, you get all the benefits of religion, you get all the benefits and the psychological safety and that kind of rhythm and heartbeat in your life and processing things out of your body faster. You get all of those benefits and you don't have to believe things that are unbelievable to get that tool. So I would say rituals are a fantastic place to start. There's a lot of science behind um, doing rituals that I think atheists are sleeping on a little bit. I love that answer. And I, I just have to say, I mean, that could be as simple as um, meditation. It could be something as simple as ice baths. I mean, what I'm hearing more and more is that it's the consistency and it's that, 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 that something you can have under your belt that you do again and again and again and again, it starts to become not only comfortable, but actually and when it might be uncomfortable, but then it becomes more and more, let's say you look forward to it, right? So there's a sense of longing um, for that particular process. And what's interesting, Jonathan, is we had a, um, a neuroscientist on um, a couple of weeks back who talked about the, the process of overthinking and how our mind goes through these spinning cycles over and over and over again. And I shared something with Jonathan the other day about you think about your journey going through a forest and you think about getting to the other side and that that jacks you up because what you need to actually focus on is one step at a time through the shadows, through the, the trees, through the limbs, one step at a time. And if you focus on the one step at a time, all of that, you know, future worry and anxiety starts to fade away. I just thought that that's brilliant, um, Brittany, in terms of real, and that that's what people need. We don't need, like you said, you know, cliche ending, you know, quotes and, and things and arguments, right? It's like, no, this is something that actually isn't out there in the ether. It's something I can do tangibly every day or whenever I do it. Because the reality is that we do, we are psychologically best when we are in between order and chaos. Like that's, that's the sweet spot. You, you, we need some order to psychologically function. Um, and then the chaos is like, I'm continuing to grow. I'm continually 
learning new things, right? And so we do need both. And so one reason that I spent a lot of time talking about Gen Z is because they their parents are leaving religion, but they're deconstructing. They they have trauma. They have spiritual trauma. They're not necessarily replacing that spirituality because they're just pulling out and trying to tend to their own wounds, right? And so Gen Z is in this place of chaos. And so these, although I wouldn't say a lack of spirituality is is the cause of these or the only cause of these high rates of anxiety, depression, suicide. Um, we do know we have studies from, for example, Lisa Miller, who wrote the awakened brain about how a sense of some spirituality, however, you know, supernatural you want to go with that or not, um, you know, is just huge for, for Gen Z, for kids, as far as non-risky behaviors and um, lowering anxiety and depression. And this, there's science behind things like awe and transcendence and community and ritual and singing and art and identity and sense of self that Jen's missing because we've pulled them out of religion and we haven't replaced it with anything. And so I think we're going to have to curate more of these uh, tools and pull them out of religion or it's Gen Z that suffers when their parents kind of deconstruct, but really don't know how to replace everything that religions um, can do that have that, you know, cause they've been doing this for thousands of years, um, kind of perfecting their system of how they do things. And so we're requiring each parent to recreate the wheel as far as spirituality and, and um, it's Gen Z that's kind of paying the cost for that right now. What was the hardest part about leaving the LDS church and what was the easiest? Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Uh, the hardest part for sure. It's the only wound that I have left um, because I, I, I've, I've deconstructed and done so much work that most of these wounds have healed. When I talk about, you know, painful experiences, I was kicked out of my home when I was 16 um, for having sex. And that was traumatic. And I can talk about that. And it, it, it doesn't, there's no wound there anymore. These wounds have healed. Um, but the one wound that's still there is that what happens when people deconstruct is that your family or your friends or your community, it's your ego's job to protect the structure in your brain, right? Because that is your safety and it's mm -hmm. the ego's job to keep you safe and to, you know, defend against anything that would be psychologically unhinging to your life. And so the hardest thing is that people that I've known for my whole life, families and friends, people that, you know, I, I, even to this day, I still go to the kids' soccer games. I'm showing up for these people. It's been like 15 years now since I, you know, had my faith crisis and they've never once asked. They never once asked why. I wrote a book on Mormon philosophy, never asked about it. I, uh, the work that I do now, never asked about it. And, and to have such a big, important, hard and beautiful part of my life be something that we can never talk about is still painful to this day when I see these people, because it's, it's a part of me that I wish I could show you. And I can understand why your ego, you know, won't let me do that. But it's still hard that you don't know that you're having to defend against me and that it's so painful. And I wish that 
I wish that I could tell you my story or I wish I could share the things that I've learned or gone through with these people that I genuinely love them. And I can fully say that they genuinely love me, but they can't because of this. It's like, it's like your ego knows, like there's something dangerous about this person. This person knows things that's going to be dangerous to my sense of safety and security and my identity and sense of self. And so without even knowing, I think that they just push you away and don't even fully know why. And um, that's still painful. The the easiest part, um, not going to church on Sunday, not <laughs> the chapel on Saturday mornings, not going to the church on Wednesdays for youth. I mean, it's a time consuming religion. <laughs> it's a high demand religion. So um, not wearing garments as a woman, very freeing. So letting go of some of those high demand aspects of religion gave me a lot of more time for a lot of other things. <laughs> That's probably the easiest part. Awesome. Brittany, let me ask you a question from the, and, and I'm trying, I want to be very delicate with this question because I want to, uh, I don't want to project anything onto it, but from your perspective, do you feel more free as a human being? And from that perspective, would you prefer your family come your to your perspective or just respect your perspective? Mm, that's such a good question. I'm going to write a thought down before I forget. Um, that's such a good question. Uh, yes, I do feel more free on this side of things. I do feel like I make more intentional choices on this side of life. And my life is just super curated to the kind of life that I'm going to live knowing that I will one day die. Like I'm one of my rituals is I wake up and I say memento mori and it like actually having death be a part of your life helps you to focus your life on what you really want to spend your life doing. And so the beautiful part of, of doing spiritual work, inner child work, shadow work, deconstructing all of the things is that you get to this place where you're in this room and you have all your feelings and all of your feelings have messages for you. And you have your, all of your past selves and you have your shadow self and all these different aspects of you. And you're in a room big enough that can take, can contain all of it. And you're kind of just sitting in the middle of it and like, Oh, I'm getting some information from some feelings. Oh, my inner child is showing up and you're just taking in some information. And then you choose in that moment, how you want to proceed. And it's, it's, it's a very free, it's the only freedom that I think we get as humans is that little space between all the stimulus coming in and our response between that is, is our little space of freedom as, um, oh, who said that, uh, Frankel, uh, Victor Frankel said that is that that's the only freedom that we get is that little space of response. So I do feel like I have a lot more freedom. I, I react less. I, I do things on purpose. Now I do things with just eyes wide open with awareness. Um, even when I have feelings or I'm triggered or my shadow self or whatever's going on, I can be aware of it. Um, and as far as inviting people into that life, I will say that at the beginning of my deconstruction, I was more like, oh, I'm just going to tell everybody about the book of Abraham or, I don't know, Joseph Smith and polygamy because everybody's going to want to deconstruct and live this life and not realizing that there's a lot of privilege to be able to do that work. And now 
I'm more hesitant to share the tools or the benefits of this kind of life, because I do think it's something that you have to choose or be forced into um, if you're forced into nihilism, because um, people commit suicide on this side of life. There's, there's dangers of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism will make you put, put on a bullet vest and blow up people and believe that you're going to go to a heaven. But pure nihilism, we lose people there too, through numbing or suicide or school shootings. Um, there's a danger there too. And so when people don't have the psychological safety to face nihilism, it can kill people. And I'm more aware of that now. I'm more aware that um, I've had some privilege to be able to be where I am. I, I've been able to be an unemployed philosopher for a lot longer than most people can afford to do that. And I've had the psychological safety. It's, it's like Maslow's pyramid. You have to have order and belonging and safety and identity before you can even think about doing, you know, ego dissolving work. You can't do that until you have some of those stages. And so I'm much more likely in a space now that, that I, I see the beauty in every stage of human development. I don't make fun of babies because they don't walk very well. You know, that's perfectly okay where they are. And um, although I think a life after nihilism is a very free kind of life, I do think it takes a lot of privilege to be an atheist. It means that you have some psychological safety. It means that you have some resources where you're not forced to be a, a part of a church community in order to get those resources. I cre recreated a whole spiritual community here in Boise. I... Um, rebuilt, you know, my rituals. I have opportunities for awe and transcendence. I mean, I, I have access and education to be able to create the kind of life that I lived that, that is privilege. And I think now I'm a little bit more wary of doing something like walking into a black church on Sunday and saying, Jesus isn't coming again. You all can become free when really that community bonded over restorative justice because of slavery and because of prejudice. And for me and my privilege to walk in and say you're free kind of feels inappropriate. And so I, I, I am much more aware now of my privilege and I think people can choose how free they want to be. And I think that people develop as fast as they can develop. And um, privilege has a lot to do with how far you're able to go um, based on kind of your early life. If you were, for example, if you were, a, my brother's an addict. My brother and I don't talk about religion at all. He's still in Mormonism. And he was a heroin addict and then found Jesus at rock bottom and joined the church. And he's sober now. And so for me to share my story with him and to invite him to all this freedom on the other side of nihilism is a threat to his sobriety. Statistically, it's a threat to his sobriety and to his life. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm more aware of those things now and more careful about who I share my story with, um, because it's, it may not be a life for everyone. And that has a lot to do with privilege, various forms of privilege. Well, my brother and sister are both in AA and they still are theists. And I was recently at my, um, sister's, uh, five year and I just heard some stories. We were all gathered around and i I was absolutely blown away by the amount of wisdom and community and um, just, I mean, 
just perspective of life, right? And overcoming something, right? So, I mean, as much as, you know, you have to believe in a higher power, and some people call it a cult. I think it's, it's one of the healthier cults because it fosters a sense of community and ritual. I think it's and I think it's functioning as a secular religion. I'm I, I'm pro yeah. I'm pro AA. I think it's functioning like a secular religion. The only problem with it when I see clients who are coming from AA is that some people have been in AA for a while. It's working for them, but in order to be there, you still have to have your identity be I'm an addict. And for some people, like it's been 25 years since they've had a drop of alcohol, right? Yes. And so for some of my clients, they say, I'm going to AA, but I need something more because being an addict is not really a core part of my identity right now. And so it's like, it's a secular religion, but it has limits. And so some people after some time will come to me um, because they're not getting out of AA what they used to, and they know that they're ready for, they want more. Agreed. I love that perspective because it's when you focus on, I am not an addict or I'm an, I am an alcoholic. You're defining yourself by your worst. And I, I, that never stuck with me. I went through Mm. rehab. I, I was addicted to something that was destructive for me. That was, and so my addiction was in harming myself. And, uh, and I realized when I went through that process, I was like, I, I, like, I like the idea of us all getting together and growing together, but let's not be alcoholics because <laughs> who am I really? Like underneath the alcoholism, who am I? And when I strip all that out, because that's negative energy. Yeah. And I want to focus on the positive and the positive is who am I? Oh, I'm love. Oh my God. That makes yeah. sense. You yeah. get the same thing with um, like some women will get caught because they'll define themselves as a survivor or a warrior. Mm-hmm. And that sounds great. Mm-hmm. And maybe for yeah. a couple of years, that needs to be an identity. I'm a survivor. The problem is, is you if you define yourself as a survivor for 20 years, you're subconsciously looking for problems to survive. <laughs> You know, you're, you're, you're subconsciously, like if I'm a survivor, I need to have these like really hard, awful things happen to me. And I need to keep picking the same douchebag over and over so that I can survive it when really there are maybe other ways of, of, um, having a sense of identity that could, could help you grow so that you're not always having to be one who survives hard things. There are other, there are other experiences in life, not just, you know, being a survivor. So yeah, some of these secular religions, um, you have to find like, what, what is it playing on as far as your identity and is it where you need in your life right now? Yeah. And well, I think a lot of people struggle yeah. with the concept of even letting that identity go. Like they've, I've, I, this is one of the things I, we started talking about this podcast last summer when I was like realizing I had been in a survival state for 12 years after my divorce. And when you realize, oh shit, I've been in trauma state or in survival state. And then you, I, I had enough tools to let it go and deconstruct pretty quickly because I had done a lot of deconstruction. But just even that concept of getting stuck in survival, it's hard. You gotta, you gotta focus on the positive once you get out of that space, or you'll get, you can get trapped in it so yeah. easy. Yeah, the victim yeah. identity is very powerful. 
Mm -hmm. And most of my clients are coming from religion. It's just, it's just the content that they relate to. Um, and so for me, I do a lot of, uh, ego work with men, especially like ego dissolving work, like let's help you kind of break down, um, your sense of ego, your sense of what it is to be a man, which is usually like a mix of your father and God. And, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't really match you. And so I do a lot of work with men for kind of ego dissolving because that's where they are in their life. But for women, it's a totally different experience because if you were a woman who was raised in patriarchy, especially patriarchal religion, you never even built an ego. Like by the time you were about five or six, you hid certain emotions. You hid things about you. You didn't act certain ways. You repressed um, aspects of your personality. And so for women, um, this is one difference and something that happens in the spiritual space where sometimes when there's too many men in the spiritual space and they're all talking about sitting on your mat doing ego dissolving work. And so the women are trying this and they never actually had a chance to build a healthy ego. And there's none of that language. And so sometimes for women, the healthiest thing to do is to go into like, what are my favorite things? I'm going to build my ego. I'm going to build my identity because you actually have to build that in order to psychologically be safe enough to let it go. And so I, with clients, I have to see where they are between order and chaos, because if you're coming from order, we need to deconstruct. If you're coming from chaos, we're going to have to build. And for your ego, do you need some ego dissolving because you, you need some freedom? Your sense of ego is trapping you right now. Or do you need to build your ego and build your identity because you never got to finish that process? And so all these um, kind of I'm keeping track of as I'm listening to people when I have clients for spiritual direction to see kind of what may be the next step for them or what we can walk into. Um, because there's different tools for where you are on the side of order and chaos or where your ego is. Um, and for, for men, it's usually ego dissolving and for women, it's usually ego building. Yeah. Speaking of ego, well, dissolving, think- you hinted at, um, taking psychedelic mushrooms, um, in one of your reels earlier, and it wasn't a, um, necessarily a pat on the back for theists in terms of what people went through. But, um, cause I had a similar, um, experience when I started reading a book called The um, Immortality Key, um, which is a story that talks about the early Christians very likely taking and partaking of the Eucharist in the early church and also doing mushrooms. And he prefaces it with a Johns Hopkins study that had these stage four cancer victims who did overcome their fear of death because of this cosmic experience they had. So flesh a little bit more about what your understanding is on how that works and if that's even part of your prescription for helping people, especially men. Yeah, I have done some psychedelic guiding as part of kind of the the therapy that I provide. Um, just because you can do ten years of spiritual direction in kind of one day with psychedelics, because you can just go so deep into your subconscious and, and do a lot of work. Um, so there was a study. The study that I was referring to is there was a study that showed that two thirds of atheists who went into a psychedelic psilocybin experience did not self-report as atheist after the experience. They did not report saying, I believe in God. So it wasn't that they marked other on kind of like a list of like, what are you now? So they didn't jump back into Christianity. They didn't jump back into like heavenly father or God or that kind of thing, but they were more open-minded 
to the sense that um, that the level of interconnectedness is more than just what my self-ascribed kind of atheism was giving language to. And so this is when you go back to kind of the God of Spinoza or the God of Einstein, which the God of Spinoza is something like mathematics or the God of Einstein is something like nature where isn't it's something almost magical that you can do math on a piece of paper and say, according to how this planet is spinning, there should be another planet this big right here. And then we get a telescope and we look at that spot in, in space and we find that planet of that exact size. And there is something, that sense of order, that, that sense of natural order in the universe, the interconnection of all things, the mysteriousness of consciousness that we still don't know what it is that keeps the lights on. We can't even, we don't even know if it emerges or if the universe is panpsychic, meaning that consciousness is an inherent um, element of the universe. So, So much of that is mysterious and we are connected to each other in ways that we don't even fully understand. And so after people have a psychedelic experience where you feel, some people feel overwhelming amounts of love or connection to nature or um, just that peace of inner being um, or just the magic of what it is to be alive and people will get lost looking at a flower for an hour and how beautiful it is that people will come out of that and they'll say, I'm not, I don't want to call myself an atheist, um, even though they still even though they still are an atheist to a theistic God, like they still are technically atheist. They just want a word for it's not, it's not, you know, the God of the old Testament. I still don't believe in that, but there is something magical here. There is something magical about being alive. There is something uniting. There is something, um, truly mysterious about consciousness that the word atheism just doesn't give a lot of credit to. And so people are wanting a different word. Some people call it source or the universe or collective consciousness or the ground of being. There's a lot of words that people use to say, I still don't believe in Old Testament God, but there is something more magical than just, you know, reading scientific journal journals and you know, the kind of hardline rationalistic atheists that just kind of make fun of everything. There's something more to life than that too. And so people come up with words for that. Do you think, because I think you've touched exactly on the problem. Do you think atheists would be more received if they were saying, I don't believe in that God that you've constructed, but are they still searching for God or have they ended that journey? Yeah, it, de- it depends on the atheist. There's a great book by John Gray, who's a, an atheist philosopher, English philosopher, called The Seven Types of Atheism, um, which would be a super, if you guys ever want a podcast about that, it's a super interesting book um, about different kinds of atheists. And so sometimes atheists are like um, secular humanists, which in some ways is religious. Like in some ways, secular humanism is kind of living under the shadow of Christianity because they don't have 10 commandments, but they have 10 commitments. And it's like, they're still kind of playing in this kind of post Christian space and they want to the world to become a better place and become utopia. Well, where do we get that concept from? We get that concept from monotheism. So there are some, there's like a scale of like true atheists versus like, um, 
people who think that they're atheists, but they're still operating under the shadow of kind of God or religion and maybe don't know it. Um, and so there are, there are mystic atheists. There are, you know, pure rationalist, materialist, determinist atheists. And so it really depends. I have to really listen to a person when they say that they're an atheist to say that, you know, if you say that, like, if you were raised that you, your favorite color has to be red. And then when you get older, you say, my favorite color is everything but the color red. You're still operating under the concept that you're you, the, the color red, right? You're still operating under that system, even in your rejection of it. And so one of the things that I do is to really help atheists, not just, um, you know, leave, leave religion if that's what they're wanting to do, but also to undo all of the scaffolding, all of the brain and thought patterns that were created while you were in religion that have to be undone in order for you to really say that, you know, I'm, I'm free as much as one can be from kind of how I was indoctrinated. And so it, it depends. I, I would say some atheists are true atheists and some atheists um, are in the cult of atheism, like ex-Mormonism, for example, as a community can sometimes act like Mormonism, right? Because these are people who have been Mormon their whole life. And so there'll be like a narrative and these are, you know, Sam Harris is the new prophet and Christopher Hitchens is the new prophet and their brains are still operating just like they did under Mormonism, but now they're ex-Mormon. Anyway, so I have to really listen to a person to see where they are in their atheist journey to see um, if they're still operating under the shadow of religion, which Nietzsche talked about, um, that God is dead, but we'll be looking for him in the shadows um, for thousands of years to come. And then and then some people who have really done the work to fully deconstruct so that they um, are free from their indoctrination, whatever it was. You know, it'd be interesting to see the converse of that because C.S. Lewis, of course, was more of a pagan, right? And he had he debated um, theists on on campus, um, uh, I, I believe at Oxford, and then the Francis Collins of the world, who actually read C.S. Lewis um, and the Mere Christianity, and was able to see a waterfall and almost have its three states of the Trinity, if you would. It'd be interesting to see how that goes, um, and, and to see if the inverse are, are true, and and how that pivoted. I'm not convinced by the least strobel case for Christ arguments. He comes across as a salesperson, right? In terms of like these little, you know, check the box and all these kind of things that just don't really make a lot of sense. But I wanted to ask um, if you think that it really takes somebody who's been really indoctrinated for 12, 15, 20 years, their whole life, like maybe Catholicism or, or JW or um, Mormons, because one of the trends that we've been seeing is that you've got this idea in America that's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but it came out of the um, new restless reform movement that came out of the emergent church, which is a very progressive, more like, hey, can't we all get along big tent, kind of watered down Christianity, but a lot more kumbaya. And these guys basically said, listen, here's what people think. Um, I work hard. I, I, I go to church maybe a couple times a year. Um, God is up there. He's good. He's spinning things around. And, you know, it's kind of a meritocracy. Business. This is America, right? You know, we're, we're kind of pulling up our, you know, boots by the straps and we're going to do our thing. We got the gumption. And it seems to me that that is a lukewarm way of looking at things and maybe would have less trauma to it. So what, what's your understanding? And this kind of framework that you're talking about where you're trying to deconstruct this religion, even if it become a, a non-theist, 
there's a lot of baggage and a lot of, you know, machinery and parts up there. What about the kind of folks who don't really, weren't really serious, you know, Christians went to church on, you know, Christmas and Easter and are just kind of listless, you know, is that, is there a different angle for them? Mm, yeah, that's a lot a of people question. Yeah. Yeah, that is a lot of people. And I, I tend, my clientele tends to be more coming from, you know, high demand religions. Um, uh, just because that's, that's my story. And so I know that I know that place very well. But my doctorate program is in what's called open and relational theology. And it's a kind like of process theology. Yeah, it's process, process theology. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a kind of it's a kind of process theology. And uh, it's the sense that um, the future is open and God, whatever it is, is is relational. And, and so that helps solve a lot of the problems of evil and things like that. And these people are like you say, like, uh, not quite as indoctrinated, not as anti involution, not as Christian white nationalist, you know, good people. A lot of them think, you know, Jesus is just a wisdom teacher, that kind of Christianity. And um, there are a lot of beautiful things about that space. I still read Richard Rohr and I still read Brian McLaren and voices from this kind of um, this kind of more beautiful space of religion. And I think for me, um, and this is where I would differ from someone like a Sam Harris, is that my my intuitions tell me that the difference between the most deconstructed Christian, like the most liberal, open, process theology, deconstructed Christian, and the most spiritual atheist who has built kind of all of this into their life and has a sense of awe and transcendence and source and whatever, the difference between those two people is like a hair, like, like almost nothing. You know, it's like the difference between mystics, like a Sufi mystic and a Christian mystic and an atheist mushroom mystic. Like there's not a lot of true, like the differences between them are like hairs. And maybe it's like an important hair to, to both sides, but like just a hair. And so I, I'm okay with, um, I'm okay with those places. Like I'm okay with the Richard Roars in the world. I don't think that the world would be a better place necessarily if Richard Rohr was an atheist. I think he does a lot of good in the world where he is, because I think there has to be a path to that middle mystical, not fundamentalist, but not nihilist. I, I, I think there has to be a lot of paths to that space. And so I think the really, really deconstructed religious voices, um, and people, um, have, have gotten to, have gotten to that place through that path and they're helping other people, you know, not be that kind of like annoying Trump Christian. And so I, I'm more, I'm more of the space that even though, um, you know, my atheism is important to me that when I hang out with these people that are in that kind of, that, that medium space, that happy middle space, there's not a lot of differences between them. And so I'm okay with whatever path they took to get there. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't think you can, you have to get there through atheism and then like, you know, building up, I think you can get there from, from deconstructing and, you know, Jesus as a mystic wisdom teacher is still pretty cool. I think you can get there from that. So I tend to be agnostic as to how you have to get to that, kind of middle space. I just think it's important that everyone deconstruct from fundamentalism because that's going to blow up the earth, build up from nihilism because you'll die out there in nihilism and that's not a fun place um, because 
that that really beautiful mystic place is is in the middle of those two and so i'm more okay with those kind of more liberal outfits of religion uh even though that that's not necessarily where i would call myself do you know what those three rich i gotta take this one yeah. Rich, let me take this one. Yeah. You just constructed what I think is probably one of the most important conversations I've had with myself about an atheist and your, I want your perspective. Where does love play in your world? Because the construct of love that I think is the unified field, which I think I think Chris, I think Jesus personifies the unified field and it's the dominant force and that is love. Where does love play in your world? Yeah. A lot about what I learned about love came from open and relational theology because they believe that God is a God of love. And I don't necessarily believe that, but in watching people who have made their highest value be love and relationality even if the vessel that got you there is a belief that's not true, you know, even if, even if there was no God of love, the people who made love their highest value, and I look at their lives and the richness of their friendships and relationships, the richness of their projects, I, I really just think it, it has to be our highest value. And when I see people who have made love their highest value, whether through religion or not, not like conditional love, but I mean like real, I am you, you are me love. Um, there's something on, on the experience end that is delicious about that just as pure experience and also how that plays out in your life and in the world that just says that, that even as an atheist, um, love has to be your highest value. Um, it's going to be the best for you and it's going to be the best for the world. And there's just no reason to have something else be your highest value. So to me, it just goes back to this sense that I am you and you are me, that I didn't choose to be here in this body um, as a female with my own journey. And you didn't choose kind of where you were born and, and all of your experiences. And that if I was born as you, I'd be you and you'd be me. And and I just think that has to be kind of the center truth that brings it all together. And religions and religious teachers, Buddha, Jesus, um, have a lot to teach us about love that we can dig out of all the, you know, all the baggage around it and all the conditions around it that, that you know, institutions like to put around it. But at the center, just the sense that I am you and you are me and that, and that when we are alive, that the sense of consciousness that it is something like to be me and it's something like to be you and it's something like to be my dog um, really is the center truth upon which everything else spins. Even if um, there's no metaphysical reason for love, even if love is just an evolutionary advantage that we have as social primates, that, that doesn't bother me at all. It's still the best way to live experientially and still, and the best thing for humanity. So there's no reason not to have love be the center of your value system. I think what it is, is what you described is imagine a star and at the end of the star point is everybody's polarity. And we're trying to live 
and understand the opposite. And so the only place that exists love perfectly is in the center when we all, when we connect at the center where, and that's love. And I think that's, is recognizing everybody has a different journey. We have a different perspective, but what makes it work is when we all come and recognize, oh, we have the freedom to think and experience our own experience without judgment because you didn't live it. So let me, and that's what grace and love does is it gives us all the permission to be human beings that get to, because this life isn't easy. Like I, I worried about having kids, you know, it's a tough life, but to get to a space where, and I, I think love, love gets you to a space where you can begin to enjoy life because you're not living in survival mode. Mm. You're also not living from an ego space. Like when I'm really mm -hmm. wrapped up into my child on, you know, my chest or whatever, it's not about my ego. It's about this shared experience of being human. Right. And I, I sense that with, with, you know, my friends and the people who I really care about their well-being and they really care about mine. And so as we get together, our well-being kind of exponentially grows. Um, you know, that's, that's the good stuff of life. Even if that's just an evolutionary, uh, tool that we have in order to be social creatures. And, and so, you know, religion will like to say that the things that you do that are selfish are bad. And the things that you do are social are good, but what evolution has given us is that we have some selfish desires because we need to live and we have needs and we have some tribal needs and so I have some social characteristics, empathy, things like that. And other primates show empathy in order for us to be a tribe and to be able to um, survive together and thrive together. And so both both of those are not it's not good and evil. It's not it's not a good thing that I you know, both were tools of evolution. And I can use my reason as a human to be able to say this is a time to be selfish, like I need to take a nap right now, and I'm going to turn off my phone, or whatever it is. Um, and there are times to kind of lean into the needs of, of your social group. And that gives you a lot of joy, you'll get a dopamine hit from that. And I can choose kind of how I want to how I want to live my own personal life and how I want to interact in society um, in a way that maximizes my well-being and happiness and also the people that I love. Yeah. I appreciate um, that. It's, yeah. I think that's the bridge that everyone has to find is how do I connect to that opposite view and understand that. And I think that's love. I think that's where we get, that's why I like creating these spaces of dialogue is because when we have those conversations, we find there's more in common than there is in conflict. Yeah. yeah. That's what I find when I go to these interfaith spaces where if someone wants to call that Christ consciousness, but they're mm -hmm. like, they just said exactly what I said, but they call it Christ consciousness. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't, there's a difference to me. This is something that I have to think about a lot because what do I do about the God word? Because I'm a spiritual director. Mm -hmm. I, I, the God word comes into my work every day, every day. Mm -hmm. And so how I do that is that if people are talking about a subjective experience and they call that God, or they call that unified love thing, Christ consciousness, what mm -hmm. they're doing is they're using mouth sounds 
to ex to describe a subjective experience. And I, as a human, can meet that subjective experience. I may call it collective consciousness. I may call it other things. But subjectively, if someone walks into a Gothic cathedral and they say, I feel God here, I don't have to be like the atheist asshole to be like, well, actually, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can I can meet that and say, I feel that too. This is a really sacred space. This is really beautiful. But if someone says um, Jesus is coming next year and Trump's going to usher in a second coming. Okay, wait, now you're not just talking about a subjective experience. You've made an objective claim about reality. And now we're going to use all the tools that we use for objective claims about reality, which is mostly science. It, that needs to be science. And then I'm going to come at you and I'm going to come at you hard because that sounds like a lot of bullshit. And so uh, for the God word, it really depends. Is someone using this word subjectively? And I can meet that, um, which I do with, you know, Sufi mystics and Christian mystics and, you know, whoever. Um, or is someone making an objective claim about reality that needs to be challenged in the free market of ideas because it's a bullshit uh, it's, it's just a bullshit metaphysics and we need to be tough on those. And so I can, I can be soft on God and tough on God, depending on whether it's a subjective or objective claim, because those are different things. Those are different tools. Yeah. Our image of God is, uh, the image we've created. We've always got to be deconstructing that because it's always better and that's a lot of our bullshit in our head that we just pick up along the way through conflict and trauma. And it's like, there's good reason to do work because it releases you from all of that negative energy and crap. Like there's not just a, it's not just an identity issue. It's also a physical issue. It fundamentally alters your capacity to experience life when you let go of all that bullshit. You know, mm. how would you, what was your best moment of deconstruction like what what was not the pinnacle but just that deep moment of awareness like this was the right path for me yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that part of the journey so one of when i was in nihilism my favorite philosopher was camus albert camus who talked about nihilism and he essentially said um that we you you have three options when you come to face the realities of life. You can commit suicide. And he believed he believed that the first question of philosophy is whether or not to commit suicide because are you going to consent to life as it is? Like that's your first choice in philosophy. Are you consenting to this? Because you were brought into this world without your consent. He um, really encouraged people to not make that first choice, suicide, because we truly do lose something um, collective and, and something beautiful when someone decides to take that route. Your second option is what he would call philosophical suicide. And this would be kind of what Leo Tolstoy did, which Leo Tolstoy spent about four years in nihilism. He actually told his servants not to have any ropes in the house because he was afraid that he would kill himself. And then he, um, he turned back to God and he committed what Camus would call philosophical suicide, which means Whatever life raft is thrown at you, you took it so that you didn't have to deal with this. 
And he called that philosophical suicide. And people do that all the time. Um, people will leave religion and the first life raft is astrology. And now they're, astro they're an astrologer and you never actually faced your demons because you just jumped onto whatever life raft Next, was thrown yeah. at you. And then the third option is, is what he explores in the myth of Sisyphus, which is to you know, you have Sisyphus, he's pushing a rock up to the top of the hill every day. And it's absurd because the rock falls down and he has to do it again the next day. And he essentially says, make a, make a push a rock that's so meaningful to you that even though the fact that it's absurd, you're happy as you're doing it. And it's, it's this idea that um, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your existence is an act of rebellion. So that quote was the beginning of my coming out of rock bottom is that if I don't have free will and there's no God and there's no objective reality, blah, blah, blah. The, the most rebellion, if I kill myself, I spread suffering out into the world and I become the monster that I'm trying to escape. So the only rational thing that you can do is to live a life that is so full of meaning, so um, purposeful and intentional that your existence is an act of rebellion to all the things that suck about being alive. And so I had that thought in my head that, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to throw all, all of my energy into what does my ideal life look like? And if I'm nihilistic and I don't care what people think about me and I don't care about what society thinks about me or the matrix or anything like that, then I'm, I'm going to fully do what does that look like for me? And I started to build my life and put it back together. And then I woke up one day and I real I woke up and I have a job as an atheist director, spiritual director, which I didn't even think was a thing. And I have, um, a podcast that I didn't think that anyone would listen to the almost awakened podcast. And I have friends that I've curated and found because I've said no to friends that I can't be myself with. And I have found friends that I can have these conversations with that I love. Like, even if there was a news report and it was like, uh, there's a meteor that's going to hit the earth. I would be like, I'm so having so much fun in this conversation. Can we just keep talking? Like, it doesn't matter to me. Like I'm enjoying the conversation. And, um, you know, my marriage got better. And my, as I put rituals into my life, my family life got better. And, um, so I have this job and I have these friends and I have this work and I have these conversations and I started to treat my body better because, um, so much of what we think is based on kind of how our body is doing. And, and if I'm going to live a meaningful life, then I want my body to be working with me than against me. And slowly I started to put all these pieces together until I woke up one day and I was, surprised that I'm excited for today. Like, even though it's meaningless in three generations, everything that I do will be completely forgotten. Doesn't matter. I'm excited to live today just for the pure experience of it. And so it was that quote for me that really helped me to throw all of my effort into what is your most ideal look, life look like? Creating it and then waking up in it and saying, it really truly doesn't matter that I'm going to die or that life is meaningless because I'm so enjoying the experience of being alive right now. And, and that's the journey that I now help other people do, which gives me even more meaning and joy in my life. I think that point right there is exactly what everybody is searching for is that place where I am fully human and at peace with myself. 
And I want to meet other people like that who mm-hmm. are at peace with themselves. We can have conflict, but don't drag a lot of old conflict into that. Like that point, that's a sacred place. And I think that's what all human beings want is they want that ability to connect emotionally and relationally with people. Uh, like you talked about at the very beginning is like part of deconstructing from religion is you lose your network. Mm-hmm. And I realize I've had to create new ways of creating friends and it's forced me to be a better human being because when you're a better friend, people like you. So it's like when you practice love, people like you and mm-hmm. you create friends that are local. I like my best friends are across the street. Yeah. So it's like having people in our neighborhood. And I think ultimately if the church is real or in, cause I think we all want it, our version to be real, but for those who are f- coming from the church side, it's like, I just, the, the journey of really proving it out only comes through practicing love. Mm. And so I think a lot of people really fight that theological war cause they're fighting it in their own head and they don't know how to solve it. Yeah. And, and, and just a lot of, love. yeah. And there's a lot of fear there and having to defend mm-hmm. your beliefs yeah. Um, that, that you don't have to do once you understand kind of what your ego is doing and why it's doing that. So yeah, love, love is definitely a huge piece of it. And, and that requires authenticity because when you have to change yourself to receive love, it's not that kind of depth that you're talking about. It's not that kind of like, I'm nakedly human here and you see me and you still love me like that. That is the best part on this side of life is that even though I had a lot more friends and connections and when you're Mormon, it's such an insular community that when you're in, it feels really great. Like, like I, it feels fantastic because, um, it's, it's just such a tight knit community. That's always kind of servicing each other and checking in with each other. And that part feels like a lot of safety and Brian McLaren calls it, you know, deconstructing is like uh, learning your family is the mafia where you're kind of horrified by what they've done, but you also kind of miss the family spaghetti dinners and maybe you wish that you didn't, but you do. And, and so the, the benefit of this side of life, and there's going to be, there's going to be a period there where you lose your faith community and you don't have those new relationships yet. But if you lean into that love and authenticity piece that you're talking about, you can find um, deeper connections and deeper relationships and deeper community and a deeper tribe. Because in religion, you'll always have to contort yourself a little bit to get that fitting in belonging feeling. And so, especially as a Mormon woman, you have to do quite a bit to look the right way and talk the right way and act the right way in order to get that acceptance. And so on the other side, when I can do psychedelics with someone and um, be totally open and honest, because some of my trips are very dark and very nihilistic and I could cry and be totally open and honest about what it is like to be me as a human right now and be totally loved and safe in that space. There's nothing in the religious community that I left that is at that level of vulnerability and honesty and connection. So that's kind of when people are having a hard time with it, that's sometimes the carrot at the end of the stick that I tell people, which is everyone is searching for that for sure, especially when you're in kind of your second half of life where authenticity matters so much more 
is um, the connections get better when you don't have to fit in to whatever your matrix is and you authentically can meet other people who are um, able to be nakedly human like you can. And when you connect in that space, that's the good stuff of life. Has there been any reconciliation with your family? Yeah, um, some, <laughs> some. So is it just cordial? No, um, no. So my my mom has now left. So like half of us have left, and half of us kind of are are still in. So I I have a gay brother who, and he kind of you know that breaks open a Mormon family too. So the ones who are in are a little bit more nuanced than than maybe how we started as a more orthodox family, but. Um, you know, it depends on the person. Um, I wouldn't say I'm ostracized by any means, um, but it's still kind of that elephant in the room when when you're with those members who are still active um, because there's still that sense that I need this in my life and you can't say anything that kind of threatens that or it hurts our relationship. And so I just kind of, you just have to tiptoe a little bit, or as what I tell people to do is, is there ways that you can get around each other's ego? So, and this may be the last thing that I'll talk about here before we have to go. But one of the most important things for this space is learning how to communicate past ego. So me as the deconstructed person, my ego wants validation. My ego is dying for someone to say, wow, tell me your story. That was really brave. What a beautiful story. Like my ego is just like dying to hear that, right? When you're deconstructing. And then the other person's ego is like, I have to block all of this out because something about this is really scary and possibly like, could blow up everything in my life. And so I don't want to hear any of this. And so as these two egos come up to talk to each other, it's just going to be so combative and so painful for both sides. So is there a way that um, you can talk around ego? So for the deconstructed person, me, that looks like um, not sending my family articles about Joseph Smith being a pedophile. Like that's not going to be good for our relationship. That's going to require that their ego shuts me out. But if I say things like I found more spiritual experience outside of the church and, but I still love some of the stories about Jesus. And I take some of those stories with me on my journey. And I value so many things about my childhood being raised as a Mormon. There's so many good things. And now I help people who um, also have a hard time with religion, but are seeking spirituality. That's a much more safe, like I'm trying to meet you human to human and their, their ego can calm down like, Oh, okay. That feels kind of safe and they can meet me there. And so it's all about how can we communicate and connect human to human, going back to this I am you and you you are me, and um, making kind of platforms, allowing for that to happen so that I don't say things that are just going to demand that their ego attack me. Um, and that can be, that's hard on social media. I don't do that on social media, <laughs> but in person, I do try to find ways to like, is there a way that I can connect to your humanity? Um, because in reality, everybody's just doing the best that they can. And I think that's the better journey and better response is return love for hate. You know, it's like if someone throws hate your way, return love. It's a better throw. You know, it always works better to be just human being. I can't solve your problems and take care of mine, but I'm still going to love you and yeah. walk away. You know, it's like do, you don't I have still have that little bit of snarky atheism, which is I'm gonna, if I'm going to throw love at you, I'm going to like quote a quote from Jesus at you so that I can like, because the best thing about being an atheist is that little bit of snark that you get. 
<laughs> so I may sometimes still be snarky about it, but um, yeah. I do try. I do try my best to um, or a lot of return things with love. Hitchens. Yeah, yeah, I love that man. He's the best. Yeah, he's he the is. best. He's, yeah. he's did, the, he, did you say he came from the Mormon Church? No, no. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. But I'm just the the four the four the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. I see some atheists who are come from religion, kind of they become you know the new pastor or the new prophet in your brain because um, it's these. He's you know, an authority. Atheists. Yeah, he's an authority, and and yeah. I have to check in with that to say like, are you just replacing? You know. Are you just replacing your profit system? Maybe we need to deconstruct that some more and listen to what you have to say. But anyway, uh, yeah, Chris Fritchens, probably the best orator I've ever heard. And uh, I, I do Absolutely miss brilliant. him being gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, because we're going to wrap up here, Jonathan, but I was going to Go say ahead, we've been going, we've talked a lot about on our podcast about the hero's journey. And I was really hoping to hear you discuss the heroine's journey, which goes even deeper and it has to keep going. Um, whereas the, the male version of it um, has a little bit of a shorter story to it. But I think we might have to save that for another podcast because I think we would mm. love to have you back would on. Would you come back? Yes. Yeah. Would you I'll, please? I'll come back and we can do the heroine's journey. Just as a little snippet, the heroine's journey yeah, continues where the hero's journey ends. And at the end of the hero's journey, um, you know, he kills the dragon and gets the princess and he brings whatever gift back into the community. That's the masculine um, journey is to kind of have this battle, meet your fears, mentors, friends, enemies, but then to bring your gifts back into the community. But the end of the heroine's journey is um, a, a reconciliation with the feminine. And essentially it's um, the balance of masculine and feminine, kind of like a yin yang balance that you can choose whether to have a feminine response or a more masculine response. And it's, it's the balance of both. And so it's not the journey of the penis or the vagina. This doesn't have to do with gender. It's some, it's a journey that anyone can take, but it's a really beautiful journey for a story, archetype story for becoming balanced. And we get that from the heroine's journey more than the hero's journey. So I'll come back and do that one with you someday. Awesome. Absolutely looking forward to it. All right, everybody. We uh, thanks for listening in. This has been Living in the Matrix, and uh, I'm Jonathan. Say goodbye, Rich. Bye, everybody. Have a great weekend, Brittany. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I can't wait to dive in more. Appreciate it. Much love, everybody.